Good morning. Agape Eleithea. There's been some, I don't know, some, some of the speakers have tried to venture a guess at how the title of their talk came about. I don't have much of a guess. Um, my daughter's middle name is an anglicized, midwesternized, maybe just Jaredicized version of that word. I ain't calling my daughter that. Peyton Alethea is my is my daughter's name. Love Truth is the title of the talk today. I've heard that uh, as long as a person has good intentions, it matters a lot less how they say what they have to say, and I hope that that's true. I uh, have some things to say that I hope will go across well this morning. I have no malicious intentions, um, no vendetta to to push. I do want to help us all on our, our journey to heaven. And I also... So I'm going to kind of speak a little unapologetically this morning, and I hope you can can bear with me in that. Um, I've, I guess not, I'm a lot more, I'm that way, I guess, more direct, and I've chosen not to, not to try and change too hard, because I know that we all benefit from different people uh, in different ways, in different, different methods of delivery. So, this morning, uh, the the letter that I was that I was sent said uh, that Second Thessalonians two and ten states because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved and the question was how do we learn and teach ourselves and others to learn the, to love the truth and uh, as circumstances have it I was actually asked this question a year ago and I kind of have to admit to you this morning that I don't have the answer yet. Um, Quite frankly, I'm not sure it's as much about teaching ourselves to love the truth as it is avoiding the things that separate us from the truth. I, I tend to believe that we're all given an intrinsic love for the truth, and it's it's our job not to choke it out, but rather to cultivate rather and 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 grow in our love for the truth. Let's begin then this morning by by taking 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10 in context. So <clears throat> I'm going to read oh about the first 12 verses of of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or by a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, 
I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in this time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The scriptures I'll be re- referencing this morning, will, I'll be reading from the ESV, mostly because nobody told me I couldn't, I guess. <laughs> I'm under the impression that in Second Thessalonians 2 here, what we're, what we're reading about is, is the, the Pope or the papal system, the papacy. And really, thinking about how that system developed... I think that, that should be a warning in a uh, warning to us in and of itself. The papal structure we know developed out of slow and and minor perversions to the truth and to what was delivered to the New Testament church. It the, through these minor, slow and minor perversions grew the beast, the beasts referenced in in Revelations chapter thirteen. So in in Second Thessalonians chapter two, we can see three groups of people here, can't we? The first are deceivers, those who renounce and purposely pervert the truth for personal gain. The second are those who are deceived, those who didn't love the truth enough and were led astray. The third then are those mentioned in the latter part of the chapter, which we didn't read, and that group. Those are the ones who, through the sanctification of the Spirit and love of the truth, stood firm and held to the traditions that they were taught by the apostles. So then the question this morning is, assuming that we're not among the first group, how do we avoid being numbered among the second group and instead numbered among the third First, however, what I'd like to do is, is, is talk about and, and try and answer an even more fundamental question. What is the truth? What is it? Tell, somebody, somebody tell me, what's the truth? Okay, I see this. I, I got an answer. Somebody held up a Bible. Okay, so I, it's been a while since I've had a Bible that or read and studied regularly from a Bible that had red letter, but everything that's in red then. Is that the truth? Well yes, but is that all is that what we're talking about? Not entirely. John chapter seventeen, verse seventeen, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So that we, we have the right answer. But it goes beyond what is written in red in our in our red letter Bibles. It goes beyond the words that Christ Himself said, doesn't it? 
John chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. We're, we're more familiar with an earlier uh, accounting of this where, where Jesus was talking primarily to Peter. But in John chapter 16, verses 13... Or no, I'm not, I'm not there yet. Matthew chapter 18 is where I was talking about. But let's just start in Matthew cha- or John chapter 16. Uh, 13 through 15, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, uh, He will sp- speak and declare. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said, He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the the Spirit of God guided the apostles in their teaching, in the doctrines that they professed. Now we'll go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. Earlier, we had, the, we had Christ interacting uh, with Peter, but in, in Matthew chapter 18, verse eight, 18, He is uh, interacting with all of His apostles there. And He says to them, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so, here he is giving the apostles, he's delivering authority to the apostles, that what they permit, God permits. And what they deny us, God denies us. These men had the doctrinal authority of God. That was that was given to them. And finally, we cannot disregard the Old Testament's value. You know, we we often reference Romans chapter fifteen, verse four. But through the Old Testament, we can better understand our God. We we want to get to know the nature of our Lord. And and uh, the Old Testament is a good source for that. Okay, so the truth is here. So then is there a process that I should use in discerning God's will? I had to go through an exercise as I was preparing this talk. I was raised and and taught growing up that we understand God's Word and we, we, we... extract God's will from God's Word through um, necessary inference, through example, and through direct command. And I knew that that was based in Scripture, but I had to, I had to go through myself and, all right, can I, can I find a scriptural example of this? Because we, we, we want to find the truth the way that we're instructed to find the truth. We don't want to come up with our own ways and our own equations or our own procedures. So let's let's turn to uh, Acts chapter fifteen. We're going uh, at verses six through twenty-one. Give us a pretty good example of of this <clears throat> of this procedure here. And in Acts chapter fifteen, it's discussing um, the Gentiles here. And in, in, in this discussion concerning preaching the gospel of the Gentiles, Peter makes his point on the basis of necessary inference. 
Notice the three facts that Peter uses to properly understand what God would have the Gentiles to do. Number one, Peter points out that earlier he was sent by God to preach to the Gentiles. Number two, God had acknowledged the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did to the apostles back in chapter two. And number three, God made no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles as to their salvation. So, what did with those three facts laid out, Peter draws the necessary conclusion. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then Paul and Barnabas step up. And they use the idea of approved examples. They have shown... The, they, they relay the mighty works that they have been able to perform, the, mi the miracles that they have been to, able to perform among the Gentiles. And, and what does that do? Their, their ability to perform the miracles was a form of God's approval. And so there was an example that God approved of preaching to the Gentiles. Finally, verses 13 through 21 contain direct commands that the Gentiles were going to be given. So now, now that we know what the truth is and, 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 and ways to discern, to go about discerning God's will from it, I'd like to look at a few of the things that can get in the way of us seeing the truth that's before our very eyes. First, let's turn to John chapter 7. And we're going to pick a few verses out of here. <clears throat> here we find that Jesus is attending a feast in Judea. And he began teaching openly among the Jews, and a debate began among the Jews. Who is this man? Is this man really the Christ? The Scriptures lay out several examples here of the Jews reasoning among themselves, and I'd like to take a look at some of, these, some of the things that kept them from finding the truth of who Christ was. They are some of the very things that can keep us from finding the truth as well. The first obstacles for the truth that I would like to look at are, are mostly or largely secular sources. The first of the secular obstacles that the Jews encountered is found in, in verse 26. So John chapter 7, verse 26. Who was it that the Jews looked for to find the truth of who Christ was? It was the Jewish authorities. So, well, he's, he's being allowed to teach, so the authorities believe, they must believe he's the Christ. And so, this was their line of reasoning. Authorities must believe he's the Christ. Well, he must be the Christ then. That would lead him to the right conclusion in this case, but one thing that we must be careful of is putting too much stock in the words of those we respect and love. Truth is not found in the wisdom of this world. Our fathers and our mothers our and our evangelists, our elders, they are not sources of truth. It is their job to uphold truth as they're Christians, but they are not sources of truth. And that is an important distinction that we need to make. No one, There's no one on this earth in whom you should fully trust your eternal soul. 
The second of the most secular example, the more secular examples can be found in verse 52. The chief priests and Pharisees had to picked up this debate among themselves. And some of them reasoned that no prophet had ever come from Galilee, therefore Jesus could not possibly be who he claimed to be. History is not a reliable source of the truth. Just because things have been done a certain way for as long as we can remember does not mean that they align with the truth. As a body, I, I know that we've discussed multiple times the, the traditions that we hold as the church. Though we try to ensure that our traditions come from the truth, we should not look at our traditions and try to discern the truth from them. God's Word is truth. Truth is found in the Scriptures. We should not consider our loved ones, those we respect, or even the traditions of the body as sources of the truth. Now, we, we also know that we can't write off our traditions as not being rooted in truth either. But we need to make sure that our traditions are rooted in truth, but yet they are not sources of truth. So now let's get into less secular obstacles. The next example I want to look at is back in verse 27. Some of the Jews of Jerusalem were under the impression that no one would know where Christ would come from. Should the Jews have known where Christ was coming from? Yeah, okay, we have some heads nodding up and down. They should have known, right? Micah chapter 5 verse 2 told them that the ruler of Israel was to come from Bethlehem. The Jews in verse 42 knew this. We, we know that this is not an impossible thing for them to know because the Jews in verse 42, they knew that the Christ was supposed to come from Bethlehem. <clears throat> Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I am making an assumption, of course, but I, I think that these folks had probably misinterpreted Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and believed that suddenly come meant that He would appear from nowhere. So then the third obstacle that the truth must overcome is misinterpretation of Scripture. The fourth obstacle here is found in verses 41 and 42. Here we find some of the better informed Jews who knew that Christ was come to come from Bethlehem, but this man came from Galilee. I'm labeling the fourth obstacle as disinterest or lack of research. If these folks had just asked a very simple question, they'd have learned that Christ was indeed born in Bethlehem. How easy it is to miss the mark. Picture yourself as a devout Jew in the first century. Would, would you have believed? Would you have believed? That's a question that bothers me some. Would I have believed? As we search the scriptures, we need to realize that, that we're people with baggage. 
Daddy accidentally taught us some things that just weren't quite right. We have a tendency to look through the lenses of our own experiences and draw in our own resulting exclusions when we enter the Scriptures. We may not yet have the knowledge base that allows us to come to the right conclusions. We have baggage. We need to want to find the answers and we need to actually look. It's important that we enter the Scriptures with a clear understanding of our own weaknesses. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but we like to deny that we have shortcomings, that we have weaknesses. And that is to our detriment. We need to own. need to own our shortcomings so that we can grow beyond them. To deny our shortcomings is to ensure our folly. The last obstacle of the truth that I want to look at in, in the book of John is actually in chapter 8, verse 43. Jesus asked the Pharisees, Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. The final obstacle is the most dangerous of all, and it is a hard heart. These people, for whatever reason, Refuse the truth for a lie. And in the spite of its danger, I know that we have all been this person at one time or another. The good thing about it is, at least for me, I seem to know when that shoe fits. I seem to know when I am turning a blind eye or when I am hardening myself against the change that is demanded in the Scripture. I need to own that. And I need to move beyond that. The final thing I'd like to discuss is our process of seeking the truth. We need to look at it as if it's not going to cost us anything. I am truly sorry to bring this up, but it's the best example in my own life that I have to share Back in November, there were questions raised. Had the democratic portion of our republic been compromised? Did the results of the election reflect the will of the people or just those with money and those corrupt enough to commit fraud? At first, I desperately wanted to know the answer to that question. What was the truth? As time went on, more allegations were made, and, and some of them were even, true, even proven to be true. As that was happening, I found a shift in my mentality. I realized that maybe I didn't want to know. Maybe I didn't want to know the truth. If what I feared was true, what would that mean? Civil war? Certainly, an additional loss of faith in our election process. What would be distinguishing us from the third world countries where the cartels rule the elections? My fear of what, my fear of finding the truth, whatever it would have been, caused me not even to want to know. 
My fear of the truth and what it would cost my country and maybe even my family caused me not even to want to know. We must avoid this attitude at all costs when we search the Scriptures. We cannot allow the cost of the truth or the fear of change to be a wedge between us and God. We cannot allow it. So again, we need to be honest with our... So moving on from there, we need to be, again, honest with ourselves and own our weaknesses. And that's kind of what I'm wanting to get into at uh, now. So I have a question, a couple questions I'd like you to think about here. Why are you here this morning? Why is it that you serve God? Why is it that you avoid certain actions as a Christian? Do you do what God says primarily because you love Him and you want Him to be happy with you? Or do you do what God says primarily because it's the right thing to do and or you fear Him? Is your priority to please or is your priority to obey? And there's not a wrong answer or a way that I want you to answer this question. I want you to answer this honestly. Do you seek to please God or do you seek to obey God? Because not one side is stronger than the other, but rather each option has its unique challenges. We are all created in the image of God, but we each have our own unique challenges. And, and I'd like to address these, these group, uh, you know, I'd like to divide us into groups in this matter and address each separately for just a minute. I realize that's kind of a difficult question, and why does it matter? if we're all trying to genuinely, genuinely trying to follow God's will. And again, I think it's important to understand and know our motivations. And really, I suspect that our answers to these questions will fall in line with our attitude towards the Scriptures as well. I suspect that those of us who wish to please God value relationships over facts and orderliness. And those of us who strive to obey God prefer facts and orderliness over relationships. Knowing such things about ourselves is important when it comes to learning to love the truth in its entirety. And it seems that there are certain weaknesses shared among these two groups, and this is where, you know, it might get a little more touchy, but... It appears that those who, of us who prioritize pleasing God tend to care less about the specifics of what God says. We can appear to those around us as less committed or nonchalant, and we can appear to have a blatant disregard for the specifics of the Word of God. And yet, on the other hand, it appears that those of us who prioritize obeying God have a tendency to overemphasize the specifics. We tend to be guilty of, at least deep down, thinking of our Christian walk as a list of do's and don'ts. We can appear to those around us as rigid and legalistic. What I'd like to do with our remaining time is to address both groups more or less individually in an effort to encourage us all to see and love and accept the whole truth and not just the portions that come most naturally. Let's start with those who prioritize pleasing God. Have you guys 
more or less placed yourselves. I know it's going to be harder for some. We know who, you know, there's among, ones among us who are clearly polarized in this issue. So, but I don't see any heads nodding where we placed ourselves. Okay, okay. See a few heads. All right, now let's get going then. Those of us who prioritize pleasing God. Imagine for a moment, and I hope you don't have to imagine, but imagine for a moment that your parents have always been extremely precious to you. They've never had much in the way of money, but they worked hard to see that you had a good life, and you always felt secure, and you always felt loved. You got married, and your parents scrimped and saved, and they bought you an extremely nice set of crystal glassware. You cared for that set religiously. It moved with you every place you went, and you cherished that crystal above all other worldly possessions. You had kids, and along the line, your parents passed. Now you cherish that that crystal more than ever, as it embodies the your memories of your parents more than it ever had before. One evening, after dinner with friends, you needed to leave and go run an errand. And you put your oldest child in charge of washing the dishes. While I'm gone, I, I want you to wash the dishes. I don't want to see anything left out when I get back. Remember now, the crystal has to be hand-washed. Upon your return, you find that your child has indeed washed and cleared away all the dishes. Great! But as you open the dishwasher, your heart sinks to your stomach. In the dishwasher, there is a full set of cloudy and, cra cloudy and cracked crystal glassware. So I ask you, are you pleased with your child? Did your child do what you asked? The dishes are washed and put away. There's not a dish out. Well, they're not put away because you found them in the dishwasher, but there's not a dish left out. The child did as was asked. That's what you really wanted anyway, right? To have a clean kitchen when you returned? The child did as was asked, but the child's actions were not pleasing because the child failed to perform the task as you instructed them. So, does God care about the little things or the specifics we find in the Scriptures? Well, I mean, of course He does. Of course He does. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Nadab and Abihu were making an offering to God. And the problem was that they didn't do it the way that God had asked. Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 1-7 through seven. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name 
of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Benadab, which was in, on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there besides the ark of God. Uzzah was taking the ark to Jerusalem where it would eventually belong. All he did was steady the ark on the cart so that it would not fall and be damaged. Was God pleased with him? No, he was not. God had given specific instructions to the children of Israel on how the ark was to be transported and it was not to be touched. Were those instructions not important? The details of God's word matter. Paul drives this point home even more, to me anyway. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Going to kind of cut in here a little bit. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Here, Paul dictates an entire paragraph based on, in our language anyway, the addition of an S. Paul has an awful lot to say about one little letter, doesn't he? Are the details of God's Word important? single letter, the plurality of a word had meaning. How can we say that the details do not matter? How can we assume that we know and understand God's intent? How can we say that, in effect, we understand the heart of the command? And the letter of the command does not matter. John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Some would suggest that we depend too much or that we depend Let's see. Some, some would suggest that we do depend too little on God's grace and mercy. But I'd say that if this is truly our attitude, we don't even understand God's grace and mercy. Many of the people I see working through this struggle understand the nature. So, so many of the people that I see working through this struggle understand the nature of Christ more than anyone else. There are great examples of love and compassion and forgiveness, patience and self-sacrifice. But I hope we know that there's more to pleasing God. There is more to the truth. And I implore you 
to seek it. Let's move on to those who prioritize, whose priority is obeying God. Like I said before, this group has more of a tendency to regard God's Word as a checklist. Because of either your love for facts or for structure, you can easily become guilty of emphasizing the specifics of what we should or shouldn't be doing over where our heart should be. Personally, I've heard the Scriptures I'm about to share over and over again, but perhaps we're just in need of a consistent reminder. I know that I am. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 through 27, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees were doing all the things that a righteous person would do. They had checked all the boxes. And they had missed the mark when it came to taking on the nature of the Lord. When it had come to changing. When it could have become to becoming like God. Matthew chapter 25 verses 41 through 46. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, They also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these, one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. For you missed the Assembly of the Saints on December 21st of 1975. You had beer-battered onion rings, you got a tattoo, and you went 80 mile an hour in a 65 mile an hour zone. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't mean to make light of going to hell or, or make light of following the commands of the Lord or, or even of developing a stance on any of the aforementioned issues based in Scripture. I think the Scripture should be the first place we look regarding any issue. But on the other hand, it is just a little bit comical, isn't it? We're so ready to ram some of these issues down the throats of our brethren and again, not that things like this aren't important. But when was the last time you gave aid to your fellow man? When did you last show compassion, patience, or love? How much like Jesus are you really? It's what we do for others that we're judged by in Jesus' illustration of the judgment, isn't it? 
Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 38. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend the law and the prophets. We need to make sure that we're growing from our nature. We need to keep the same respect we have for the details and not leave them undone. But just because we're lovers of facts or order does not make us lovers of the truth. To truly love the truth, we must love the whole truth. We must allow ourselves to be changed by it. I am happiest not when my children do good because I told them to, but when they do good because they want to, because it has become their nature. We must all learn to value pleasing God. We must all learn to value obeying God. They are the same. We cannot please God without obedience, and obedience without our hearts, without understanding and taking on God's nature, is not true obedience. God is looking for true worshipers, not worshipers who worship Him in the way they want, or in the way that they feel best suited. The last thing I have to say here is, is not really related to my topic at all, but when the thought crossed my mind, I, I knew it was something that I personally had needed to hear. It's only been in the last two year or two that I've begun to desire pleasing God. I've always just tried to do what's right. And I suspect and hope that we're all on similar journeys, growing to be more than we are. We all ought to be working to be the best we can be, and we all ought to be growing in our understanding of the truth, the whole truth. It's just that we don't all start in the same place. Some of us love facts or orderliness by nature, and so the commands of God are comforting to us. Maybe we struggle developing relationships and truly embodying the nature of Christ. Some of us value relationships. We wish to please and we, wish, and we desire God's love and adoration more than anything in the world. But we may find research to be a chore. Or perhaps we tend to think this, the specifics of God's word are not terribly important. We should all be trying to get to the same place. But we're starting on different sides of the spectrum. Let us have patience with one another. How do we teach ourselves to love the truth? I suppose I would say we don't let anyone or anything, including ourselves, get in the way of the truth. We look at ourselves and we acknowledge our weaknesses and we build on our strengths. We work on our weaknesses. I'm not sure that loving the truth is something we teach ourselves to do. Rather, we, equal, we actively root out the enemies of the truth and above all, do our utmost to keep a soft and malleable heart. John chapter 8 verse 31 32 if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples 
and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free.